Welcome to Alphabet Soup, a podcast where we're going to work our way through a wide variety of biblical topics using the alphabet. Our goal, of course, is to understand the Bible better, but we also want to find ways in which Scripture applies to our daily lives. So with that intro, let's get to it. Welcome back to part two of Original Sin. I'm assuming you listened to part one. And what I described there in part one is what's known as the Augustinian view, that Adam was our seminal head. He was our seminal head for our physical appearance, but he was also our seminal head for our spiritual being. So that when Adam sinned we and, and, and became a sinner, we became sinners by virtue of our being in Adam as our seminal head. As a result, we share in Adam's guilt. Um, that's a difficult concept for some people to accept, I guess is the way to put it, but it is what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that uh, death spread to all men because all sinned, and that we share the penalty of Adam's uh, sin, the penalty of death, because we were in Adam when he sinned. Just briefly, I want to mention the alternative views. Uh, the first alternative view is the view of a guy named Pelagius, who lived just a very long time ago. Uh, I think, if I remember correctly, about the 400s or so, three or 400s. Pelagius said that Adam uh, has no, we have no connection to Adam in terms of guilt, uh, sin nature, anything else. The most that can be said, Pelagius said, is that Adam served as a bad example. And, and that people all follow Adam's example. Well, that's kind of silly because there's people all over the world, probably the majority of creation, that don't know anything about Adam. How in the world can they be following their, um, his example? And so, not surprisingly, that a, a church council in the 400s uh, condemned uh, Pelagius's view and said, that's heresy, bogus, get that out of here. Then there is what we call the Arminian view, after a guy named Arminius, who was the first to really kind of lay this out. And the Arminian view says that Adam's guilt that we get from Adam is counterbalanced, if you will, by what's called provenient grace. That there is within each of us a proclivity, a tendency to sin. We get that from Adam. But God created inside of each person, um, he placed a kernel of grace, Provenient grace, it's called. I'm sorry, I don't know why it's called that. And that counterbalances. It is equal to any proclivity, any inclination to sin, so that each of us decides, are we going to respond to the inclination to sin that we get from Adam? Or are we going to respond to the grace that God has placed within every single individual that equally inclines us to righteousness? It is up to us, and, and, and here we get the free will part of salvation. When we align ourselves with Adam, we become guilty alongside him. When we choose to respond to that kernel of grace, that provenient grace that God put within us, then we are declared righteous. The Reformed view, by contrast to both Pelagian and the Arminian view, says that we share Adam's guilt, as we've seen in part one, uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12. There are two, maybe we can call them subheadings, under that. The first is, uh, as, as I've discussed, I'm going to say first, it, it, first, second, doesn't matter. 
The first is that Adam was our seminal head, as I've said, that it is passed down to us. The alternative is that Adam was our, the term is federal head, that God entered into a contractual agreement with Adam that whatever Adam did, he was going to function as our representative, much like our representatives in Congress do. They pass a vote, and that vote is binding on us. That Adam passed, a, uh, Adam cast a vote, and he cast that vote for sin. And that is then, because he was our representative head, that then falls to us. So, Adam is our seminal head, or Adam is our representative head. The easiest way to uh, peg those is that Adam as our federal head is the view of covenant theology. That God entered into a covenant or contract with Adam where he represented the human race. The Augustinian view, the more purely Augustinian view, is that he was our seminal head. Okay, we're not going to worry too much more about it um, in, in terms of those theological angles. Let's talk about the implications of original sin, of the fact that every one of us, from the point of conception, had not just a proclivity to, not just an inclination to, but a nature that led us to acts of sin. Thus, a child or infant who dies before they are capable of a conscious act of sin, or someone chronologically older that doesn't have the capacity to, they are nonetheless guilty of sin because they are descendants of Adam, our seminal head, and are judged uh, by God to be guilty of that same sin. Okay, That's how come everybody dies, because everybody is guilty in Adam. The result, then, is what is called total depravity. You, you may have heard that term from, uh, from Tulip, uh, the, the acrostic that helps us understand Calvin's essential doctrines related to salvation. Total depravity. What total depravity means is that every part of us is affected by sin. Our intellect, our emotions, our, our senses, uh, our sensuality, and our will, our volition, that what we think our passions, what we feel, and then our actions, what we do, every part of us is affected by sin. That is what we call the doctrine of total depravity. And, and you can read that very clearly in the Bible. huh? Um, the Bible says every intent of his heart is only evil all of the time. Paul says in Romans 1, their thinking became darkened um, and, and they intentionally forgot the things of God. They put them aside intellectually. We've seen that. Uh, we see that happening all around us, don't we? And of course, uh, the, the actions are such that th those are clearly the most obvious. And so total depravity says, because we are in Adam as sinners, original sin, we originated in sin, it's not surprising that all every part of us is affected by that sin. Total depravity does not mean that man is incapable of doing anything good. Individuals do good things, uh, saved by grace through faith or not. Individuals do grace, uh, do good things. It, it does mean, however, that no act is pure, is, is 
pure good, altruistic, and so forth. Listen, you're, you're honest enough with yourself to know that even when you do something good, there is, there is this subcurrent of, of ego, of selfishness, of vainglory, of aren't I something, I'm doing something good here. I'm pretty, I'm pretty special. We are, we are incapable of overcoming that. It is just always present within us, and we realize it. Now, now here, see, again, I'm going back to The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. What I did, there are, there are roughly two sections in this book. These chapters are very short. The book, I, I thought I had it here on my desk. I don't. The book is, is maybe 150 pages long. And in chapter 9, it shifts, and, and the character encounters George MacDonald, who was a real historical character. And in fact, C.S. Lewis credits George MacDonald with leading him to Christ, okay? So, so chapters 1 to 8 are standing in line for the bus, being on the bus, and then getting delivered to, you figure it out. And then at the beginning of chapter 9, George MacDonald appears, and as I read chapters 1 to 8 for the second time through the book with a pen in my hand, I decided to write into the margins as each of these characters appears and then passes from the scene, I, descri- I decided to write some two or three word description of who they are, the self-righteous person, the, uh, the overwrought person. I-, I just wrote these little descriptions and that's what got me thinking about this business that none of us does anything purely because one of the characters that shows up while he's on the bus is describing how good he is and all the good things he has done. But even as he's describing to our main character these things, he is telling us how good he is for the doing of them. Uh, Yeah, we're, we're just stuck in... That's total depravity. It doesn't mean that we never do good stuff, but it does mean that we never do it purely. And it means we can never always only do good stuff. We are incapable of of rescuing ourselves from the sin nature. I cannot treat, I cannot teach my dog to stop wagging his tail. I cannot teach myself to stop sinning because it is my nature. My dog is going to wag his tail because he is a dog. I am going to sin because I am a sinner and no amount of scolding or special treats is going to get my dog to stop wagging his tail and no amount of religion or, or self-discipline, or anything else is going to get me to stop sinning. That is total depravity. That every part of me is infected by sin, and it shows up even when I do something good, and it cannot be turned away by me. Now, uh, let's play with this a little more here. Let's think about... Um, about how upset we get, at least I do, I'm guessing you do too, with the condition of the world around us and the kinds of things, the kinds of evil, sinful things we see people do. And sometimes they do those directed at us, or at least where we are. It may be a work setting where there is someone who is just, just bad, does bad things, says bad things, gossips about people, cheats customers, whatever it is. They're just bad. Um, we read stories online about horrible shootings at schools or at malls or at bus stops or whatever. We read about 
the kinds of uh, crimes against humanity that are being committed uh, in, in the Russian-Ukraine, it's a war. He can call it a special military action. It's a war. When we read that, that the Russian government says that they have relocated 700,000 children from Ukraine to Russia, basically kidnapped them and taken them to Russia. Uh, and, of course, they're saying we're rescuing them. That kind of evil and, and how, how angry that makes me to read that. Those children's lives will never be the same again. Okay, I, I, I hope this won't offend you. Um, I told this story once in a sermon I preached, and it was out of my mouth before I realized I was headed down this path. And uh, from that point on, I thought, oh, I hope I didn't offend people. I grew up in Seattle. Um, in Seattle, it's because it's right on the water, there are seagulls. All the time, there are seagulls. Back in the day, I walked to school. Um, uh, K through 6, I walked to Daniel Webster Elementary, which was about a three-quarter mile walk. Now, I had old, older siblings who, for the first few years, walked with me. But by the time I'm in, I'm going to guess third grade, I'm on my own. And then junior high school, James Monroe Junior High School uh, for grades 7, 8, and 9. And that was about a mile and a half. And then Ballard High School. And until I was a junior, I had to walk to and from. That was about a three-mile walk. Most, most of those years, I walked uh, to and from school with Roger, my best friend Roger. I miss Roger. He went home to be with the Lord years and years ago. Roger lived just a bit further away than I did. Roger would walk to my house, and then we would walk together. Uh, his family moved into the area when we were in fourth grade. And from then until 11th grade, when I got my driver's license and, and got to drive that 1950 DeSoto to and from school, Roger and I walked. And then um, after that, I'd, I'd drive to his house, pick him up in the DeSoto, and we'd drive on to school. If you live in Seattle... And if you walk as much as we walked for as many years as we walked, and if there are as many seagulls as there are in the sky in Seattle flying to and fro, it is only a matter of time before you feel something land on top of your head. And, and immediately, you know, when it lands on top of your head and you have this sensation of something's hit, what is your instinct? What do you do? You can't help yourself. Before you've even thought about it, you reach your hand up there to touch the top of your head where, where you've just felt this thing on your head. And as soon as your hand touches it, you realize what it is. And if you don't realize it immediately, you realize, uh, you realize as soon as you take down your hand and look at that white smear on the palm of your hand. What is your reaction to that? If you're anything like me or my, or my friend Roger, you get instantly furious. With what or with whom are you angry? You're angry at the seagull. Uh, now, at the time, of course you're angry at the seagull. The seagull just planted one on top of your head. You're on your way to school. How in the world are you going to deal with this? Because if you show up with seagull poop on your head, you're going to be the laughing stock of the entire junior high school. You're mad at the, at the seagull for having done this, but why? That seagull only did what seagulls do. Seagulls fly and seagulls poop.
poop. Now, they do lots of other things, but when seagulls fly, they often poop. And when they poop, they're often flying. And the law of averages says that at some point, a seagull's poop is going to land on somebody's head. That somebody's going to be furious at the seagull for what? For doing what seagulls do. And, and I hear Christians going on tirades about how horrible our world is. How come there can be this kind of moral decay and selfishness and, and, and? Well, I'll answer that question. Seagulls. They are doing what seagulls do. Seagulls poop when they fly, and sinners sin when they live. Why are we surprised? Why are we shocked at the evil in the world? I think now, now see this just occurs. I think it was C.S. Lewis who I think, and it was in the Problem of Pain, if I recall, who said the question is not if there's a God, why is there suffering? The question should be if there's not a God, why is there laughter? It's harder to explain that than the first question. Okay. The question is not, why is there evil? The question is, why is there any good at all? Why do we get upset when people do what people do? Just as seagulls do what they do, people do sinful acts because they are by nature sin. Now, are those sinful acts done more overtly than they were, let's say, 50 years ago? I think probably so. I think, for example, the sexual sins, the sexual immorality, the gender, I don't know what we're going to call it. I don't really care. But the point is, I think it is more visible. It is more out in the open. It is more overt. But I don't think it's more common because people are sinners. They do what sinners do, and they've always been sinners, and have always done what sinners do. So there may be more social acceptance. And that in itself may be a problem that may lead to more of the same. I'll let somebody else figure that out. But any sense of surprise, of of surprised indignation, just doesn't make any sense if you understand the doctrine of original sin. Let's talk about our salvation. Um, (laughs) Having dismissed the Arminian view of this kernel of grace that is placed within every person. There's just absolutely no scriptural support for that view. I don't know where he got that out of a crackerjack box. I don't know. There's no biblical support. But if we understand the doctrine of original sin, we certainly sign on to Paul's teachings in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Why not of ourselves? Because of total depravity, because of original sin. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It can't be of works. We're incapable of pure righteousness. Even when we do good stuff, it is tainted by uh, original sin. That salvation is entirely the work of God, uh, and that he should love us that he should love a seagull who poops on people's heads, huh? That God in his great grace sacrificed his own son for this person who has been a sinner since the point of conception, who cannot help himself and frankly isn't at all interested in helping himself, is a sinner through and through. 
and can only specialize in doing sinful things. And yet God loves me and God sent his son to die for me. We said at the beginning that you cannot grasp the enormity of our salvation until you first grasp the enormity of our sin problem. Why is that a problem right now? Why isn't there a greater understanding of the sin problem? Why would reading the great divorce be so uh, almost shocking to so many Christians? I think, color me a curmudgeon here, but I think it's because preaching on sin has passed out of favor. Years ago, I read a book called The Breviary of Sin by, the name escapes me right now, famous guy, famous guy. Breviary is is a book that explains the basics of something. And uh, Cornelius Van Til, that's who it was, I think. Anyhow, he wrote a breviary of sin, and he describes, this book is 300 pages long, and he talks about sin, and you wouldn't think there'd be that much to say, and there's a lot to say. And he thinks about sin in ways that I've never thought about sin. Great book. It's a very challenging book. It's very, very deep, and frankly, I had trouble getting through it, but... The absence of preaching and teaching on sin in the contemporary Western church, when you stop and think about it, is just absolutely shocking. And there's a very real downside to it. The nature and content of contemporary preaching in the American church is such that I think we're losing our, uh, our sense of the grandeur and greatness of God's grace and our salvation. Um, The more so because before you preach that, we've got to have an understanding of the greatness and horror of our own sin. But people don't want to hear about sin anymore. That doesn't put seats in the pews to preach about sin. Oh, goodness. I'm sorry. Uh, Like I said, if I sound like a curmudgeon, but it is what it is. We need more preaching on sin. And whether that comes from biographical sermons that look at some people like David or... uh, I mean, there are plenty of examples in the Bible about sinners, including God's people who are sinners. Unless and until we recapture an understanding of sin, we cannot understand the immensity of our salvation. We got to do that, folks. Think about sin. Hey, there's a funny thing for a for a podcaster like this uh, in this setting to say, think about sin and maybe even pick up some reading and maybe read The Great Divorce and see how how horribly seagull-ish we are. Okay, listen, I have flown through it. Thank you for sticking with me. And I hope you'll come back next week for P is for... Yeah. What will B be? God bless.